The title of our message is, What Are Spiritual Gifts? What Are Spiritual Gifts? And this morning we're looking at verses 8 through 10 primarily. Let's pray. Thank you again, Father, for the privilege of being able to look to your word. We pray that you would set our hearts and minds on you, that we can learn of you, that we'd be able to apply your word to our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the work you're doing around the world. We're thankful, Father, um, for your church standing strong around the world as we hear from Ukraine. We're uh, thinking of Luke as he's getting ready to go out and, and just again pray your blessing upon him. And it would be a fruitful trip. And for our other missionaries, especially in Ukraine, we think of the Whites and the Alverts and many other missionaries in Europe and Poland and Germany and neighboring countries who are all working together so faithfully to help those who are in need. We pray, Lord, that um, as people see their hearts, what transformed hearts look like, that they would be convicted of their own sin and turn and trust in your name, which is the name, the only name which can save. And so we commit that to you and we commit this time to you as we look to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we started last week by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we were looking at verses 1 through 7. I'm going to go ahead and read verses, uh, uh, starting in verse 7 down through verse 10. And um, again, we're focusing on verses 8 through 10 this morning. But it says in verse 7, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of Tongues. I'll go ahead and read verse 11 as well. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. We're focusing on verses 8 and 10 where we see nine spiritual gifts listed. I don't think we'll get through all of them this morning, but we're going to start to look through them, help to us to understand them. But I wanted to begin by asking a question regarding misconceptions about spiritual gifts. When we talk about spiritual gifts... Gifts given to members of the church by the Holy Spirit, by God, by the Son, all involved in this. What are some common misconceptions about spiritual gifts? What are some common misconceptions about spiritual gifts? Stephen. That everyone could speak in tongues. Yeah, that was a very, and this is one of the reasons why. Paul writes this section here, verse chapters 12 through 14 is a unified section, and really the theme of this section is all about the unity of the church, and ironically, the church was divided and severely divided because they desired, some of them were desiring, many of them were desiring the flashier, the showier gifts. And so uh, there was a recognition that the Spirit did gift certain people in certain ways. And though I don't think we'll get to the gift of tongues today, the gift of tongues or the gift of languages, the word for tongue uh, is the same word for language, just like we use the phrase your mother tongue. And uh, some of them were speaking in uh, languages or trying to speak in languages and desiring that gift. 
uh, and uh, saying that they were, and, and the gift was, as uh, Acts chapter 2 demonstrates so well in, in the book of Acts, when the Spirit fell on the church on the day of Pentecost, there were people from 15 different nations present, and the apostles coming out, and the church was present, and they all heard them speaking the wonders of God in their own tongue, in their own language. So the gift of tongues was uh, the ability to speak a foreign language that you had never learned and proclaim the mysteries of God in that tongue so that when you spoke, everyone who heard it heard it in their own language, whether it was one person speaking in one language uh, and then that being, uh, and, and uh, you know, on the day of Pentecost, uh, there were 15 different nations listed there and they all heard these wonders being proclaimed by the apostles and by those who were present in their own language. Um, and so that was one of the gifts that they were desiring in the church in Corinth. And Paul wrote this section to encourage them to use their gifts, but not all to desire after the flashy or showier gifts, that there's a diversity of gifts. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, at the end, verse 29, it says, all are not apostles, are they? The way that sentence is structured expects a negative answer. And so the answer is no, not, not everybody's an apostle. And it says, uh, all are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have the gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. That's a difficult passage because an imperative is written the same way in Greek as something that's indicative. In other words, uh, a statement which says, you do not desire, um, or you desire the greater gifts, um, is the same as saying, you desire the greater gifts. You understand in English, when you, when you uh, make a command, it's structured the same way as when you make a statement. Uh, and we often differentiate by the tone. So in other words, if I were to say, uh, you sit there, it's a command. Um, but if I say, you sit there, and now it's a question. And if I say, you sit there, it could be just a statement. Same words, same structure, but the punctuation will help in some cases, certainly with a question. In Greek, it's the same thing. And so we have verse 31 but you desire the greater gifts. Um, you earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. In other words, what he's saying there is, you desire what's flashier, what's showier, what's, but I'm gonna show you something better. And that's when he jumps into love, chapter 13. Then he swings back after love. He's still talking about flashy gifts. You can see it at the end of verse eight. Uh, chapter 13, verse 8, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Um, and he goes on, even in chapter 14, talking about the proper use of gifts and the abuse of gifts. So 12 through 14, though we have that beautiful section in there that is often read at weddings about love, it's all within the context of spiritual gifts and using them properly and focusing on what's really important with the idea that it would bring unity. And ironically, they were clamoring for the same gift. And so 
It'd be like if the orchestra, if everybody wanted to play the trombone, you know, at, at, and we go in there and we hear the or orchestra and there's, you know, 32 trombone players. I mean, it would, it'd be impressive, I suppose. Um, 70, so 76 trombones led the big parade, but there were other instruments. Thank you for that 1960s musical reference. Um, but uh, when we think about uh, spiritual gifts, if everybody had the same spiritual gift, the church wouldn't function the way it should. Um, what's another misconception about spiritual gifts? Yes. And someone says, oh, I have a word from the Lord. Oh, yeah, I have a word from the Lord. We're going to talk about that today. I have a word for the Lord, uh, from the Lord for you. Uh, that's a, that can be a very dangerous thing because, um, first of all, uh, in Deuteronomy, we learn that um, you could identify a false prophet uh, how many times did a false prophet have to be wrong before you knew he was a false prophet? Once. If he said, you know, thus says the Lord, and he was wrong, we know the Lord wasn't wrong. So in, in the Old Testament, they stoned you if you were wrong once. Um, now, uh, I'm not recommending that today. We're in a different dispensation. We deal with things differently today. We're not living in a theocracy. We're not the nation of Israel. We are the church and we are to be a witness to the world and those who are lost. But there are those who are in the church who are doing things that are not proper. And uh, we'll see some of that today. What are some other misconceptions about gifts of the Spirit? Yes, follow. Oh, sorry. Ladies first. Yeah, that, that some are important and some are not important, right? And we have that wonderful section again in verse uh, chapter 12 where it says, um, verse 23, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable on those we bestow more abundant honor or less presentable members become, such more, um, become much more presentable. And, and this is... Um, uh, playing off of what he's just said in verse 16. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole world, will be, uh, um, if the whole world were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? And he goes on, he talks about the hand and the, and the feet and the foot as well. I have no ear, the head and the foot, verse 21 again, and I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And he uses the illustration of a body to show that there's unity and that every member is important and gifted for the functioning of the body. And very rarely do you hear somebody say, my, you have the most beautiful ears. Just love the way the cartilage works, and man, your lobes, they're gigantic, they're beautiful, Right? I love the way the hair brushes off the back of them. It's just unique, right? But you'll hear them say, oh, your eyes are beautiful, and you've got those big brown eyes or those green eyes. It's great. Or, you know, your, um, the eyelashes. Your, you know. So we, it's okay to talk about hair around the eyes and all that kind of stuff, but not on the ears. <laughs> um, but where would we, we be without ears, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, very few people say, oh, wow, your feet are so beautiful. You know, I, uh, I developed a foot fungus in Africa. It's still kind of there. And um, <laughs> if I wear flip-flops, you'll see that, uh, man, this guy was a missionary for sure. Um, 
and the Bible does say how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. Um, has nothing to do with the aesthetics of my feet, I assure you. It has everything to do with the ability to come from one place to another and to bring the good news, and the good news is the focus. And even though the mouth is often looked at as the place where, wow, what a great teacher, more than the feet, the feet are important for the teacher. Okay, so uh, those are the illustrations, and, 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 and I wanted to really kind of talk about some of that at the beginning, because the whole purpose of this passage, even though we're going through various gifts today, and we're talking about what they are and what they're not, the whole purpose should be unity. And I really mean this, and I want to say this from the outset, that this is where our hearts need to be as we listen to this. I oftentimes, uh, sometimes, will occasionally, not often, but occasionally people say to me, what is Grace Church going to be like after John MacArthur leaves? Well, fortunately, John MacArthur is not the only minister here. Every member of Grace Church is a minister here, and every one of them has been gifted by Christ, and Christ is the one who builds the church. John MacArthur didn't build this church, and he would be the first one to tell you that. And uh, the Lord builds his church. The Lord provides, Ephesians 4, the Lord gives pastors and teachers to his church. Why? To equip the church for the work of what? Ministry. And so everyone has a gift. Everyone is expected to employ it, and every gift is important. Okay, any other misconceptions about, yes, Luke? Yeah, like it's some sort of mystical thing. Or on the other hand, that it's something that can be tested, like on some kind of survey. You know, like the guy who took, uh, you know, four surveys on his spiritual gifts and came up with five different spiritual gifts that he has. And he's like, what is this? I mean, you would think that uh, somehow, you know, you might be able to find them out and it'd be consistent. Um, and uh, we'll talk more about this, not so much today, but I think for today I'll just say uh, that... It's important, uh, it's more important that you serve in the body than it is that you try to determine what your gifts are. You can take every test out there and, and think, okay, I, I think I have, you know, my snowflake, uh, which is a term I guess we can't use anymore, but uh, um, so for a certain generation here. But the, uh, the idea is, you know, that God creates every snowflake uniquely and individually, and the Holy Spirit gifts every person individually and uniquely. And we saw last week as we looked at verses um, 4 through 7 in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, um, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. So the, the key to unity is not that we have diverse people working together, the key to unity is that the same spirit puts the gifts in every person. And so we have the same spirit, the same Lord, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the same God, which is God the Father. The whole Trinity is involved in this, and there is a unity there. I think spiritual gifts, I think that another misconception is that sometimes people think that they're just chaotic, that they demonstrate themselves in just weird and bizarre ways. Um, you know, you walk into a church and people are rolling around on the ground and barking like dogs and you say, what's going on here? Oh, those are spiritual gifts. Really? 
Um, uh, you know, it got so extreme that in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, we saw last week that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. It could get so chaotic that some people were actually cursing God and saying that somehow the Spirit was telling them to do that. Um, and so um, an, another, another common misconception is that not everybody has a spiritual gift, and yet we saw last week that everyone does have a spiritual gift. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 6 and 7, it says, There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all in things in all, that's all persons, and but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. That is each believer. Spiritual gifts are something that only believers have, and so they shouldn't be confused with natural giftings. You can't, um, you can't say, well, I'm going to go learn a spiritual gift. They are given by the Spirit as he wills, it says in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so they're distributed to, to, to members of the body as he wills, and therefore the gift of teaching, the spiritual gift of teaching, is different than a natural gift of teaching. Um, so you, we mustn't confuse those. Now, now if, if your gift is, is ministered through music, one would expect you would also have natural giftings to go with that. Uh, and, and the same would be true. Uh, they, I don't think that they're, they're completely isolated from one another. Um, so uh, it's not as though you could get up and preach a terrible sermon and say, well, it's... Uh, uh, the spirit worked and you just didn't hear him or whatever. It, it's, there should be some uh, natural gifting that I think that would accompany that um, because God also gives natural giftings. So um, another misconception is that spiritual gifts could be practiced privately. And it makes clear in the end of verse 7 that they are for the common good. It's for the profit of all. The word there literally means at the end of verse 7, to bring together. So it's for the benefit of the whole body. And so as we think about these, uh, I, I really wanted to just at the outset talk about, let's get rid of some of our misconceptions and let's think about spiritual gifts and that they are intended to unify the body. Another misconception is that all spiritual gifts are for today. And not all spiritual gifts that were in the New Testament exist today. And everybody agrees that some spiritual gifts, at least, were temporary. Everybody agrees with that because it says quite clearly in um, verse 12, we, uh, chapter 12, we read it, sorry, chapter 13, we read it earlier. Um, it says, verse 8, if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. There's something there with the verbs and whether they're active or passive. And uh, the passive verbs, something's going to cause them to go away. And it, you look at verse chapter 8, it says, they will be done away. That's prophecy and knowledge. Um, and uh, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, so there's a lot of debate about what the perfect is. And if it's come. So everybody believes that some gifts will fade away when the perfect comes. And there are nine different views on that, and we'll get to that when we get there. But um, I want to notice also that with tongues, it uses a different word, and it's not passive, but it says tongues will cease. That means they will stop on their own. 
the illustration I give uh, sometimes, sometimes when I'm talking about the way these verbs work is if I had a little choo-choo train that I gave somebody for Christmas and it's going around the tree and around the three, tree and somebody sticks a present in front of the train and it derails it, something has caused it to be done away with. It's, it's caused it to stop. The box did, right? So that's passively it was derailed. Um, but if the batteries run out all by themselves, it ceases to go. And the verb used for tongues there is all by itself, it will stop, and it will stop with permanence. And so uh, everybody agrees. You have to look at that and say, yes, tongues were temporary. Not everybody agrees on when they stopped or if they've stopped yet, and that's where the controversy lies. But uh, when we get there, and, we're, and, and Lord willing, in a few weeks, we'll be there. But let's go back and let's talk about these nine different gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10, and noting that the purpose of these was to unify the church, and we should be thinking about that today. The first one is the word of wisdom. The word of wisdom. It says in verse 8, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. The word of wisdom is when God reveals his hidden mysteries to individuals who then would explain them to other people. God, in his wisdom, reveals hidden mysteries to certain individuals who explain them to the church. Uh, if you've been with us since the beginning of our study in 1 Corinthians, you may recall that the word wisdom was a major theme early on in the book. Paul, in the opening chapters, confronted the Corinthians with their love for worldly wisdom as opposed to wisdom from God. They loved this idea that they would be seen as Sophia or sophists, this idea that they would have some sort of wisdom that people could look at and admire. Uh, and Paul rebukes them for that. And he confronted them with their love for that worldly wisdom. And there is a sense in which every Christian needs to re rely on God's wisdom. And so it's, it's not as though if you don't have the gift of wisdom, you don't have wisdom or even God's wisdom. James 1.5 teaches us that if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So we're not talking about wisdom in general, but we're talking about the word of wisdom here. And the word of wisdom indicates that, um, first of all, this is a unique gift because not everyone will have it. Just the way this whole passage is structured, we see that um, to one is given uh, the word, another, the word of knowledge, to another faith, to another gifts. And so it's, there's this idea that certain individuals have this and certain don't. So not everybody has the gift of wisdom or the word of wisdom, although every believer should have wisdom and should use wisdom. And if you don't have enough wisdom, you should ask God and he will give you more. Um, it doesn't mean you don't have a responsibility though to uh, to study his word more, but this is different. This is a spiritual gift that was a supernatural gift that was a revelatory gift. And I think that we can understand it if we look at 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 13. So turn back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. It says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, 1 Corinthians 2, 7, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they understood, 
they would have not they not, would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, the things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And what we find in this passage is we find really this, this um, Paul speaking about wisdom that's in a mystery. Um, so the mysteries that Paul and other apostles through his spirit, the spirit who searches all things, the deep things of God, has been revealed to them. A mystery is something that prior to its revelation was unknown to the church. And so God gifted certain individuals to reveal things to people. Um, among the mysteries, we find Romans 11.25 would be an example of God's plans for Israel. It says in Romans 11.25, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It was a mystery to most believers, to most of Israel, that God would have a time where he would, um, even though we have prophecies in the Old Testament, they couldn't fully understand it until the Messiah came was crucified. There were prophecies about the Messiah where he'd come in judgment and rule and might and authority. And there were prophecies where he'd become meek and as a lamb led to the slaughter. And they just assumed that all of those would happen in his first coming. But there would be two comings and there would be a time in between where Gentiles could be brought into God's plan. And uh, so we have what now is a time for the church and anyone who's truly in Israel today is a part of the church. But there is a future plan that God will establish in the future after the church is taken away, and there is a future for Israel. And there are many prophecies for Israel that are not yet fulfilled. All of that was not clear to those early prophets. And if you've been coming to Sunday nights, you've seen uh, a lot of that explained um, and what they would have understood and what they might not have understood um, unless the Lord revealed it to those prophets and the prophets explained it. All of that has to do with the word of wisdom. Any questions about the word of wisdom before we move on? Yes. What's the distinction between that and like Gnostic knowledge? So Gnosticism is the, is, the, is the view that you have some kind of... The question is, what's the difference between Gnostic knowledge and a word of wisdom? Gnostic knowledge is somebody who says that they alone have some sort of secret truth today that if you don't know it, you're not really saved. Um, and uh, so it's their little niche or whatever like this. Whereas the word of wisdom is revealed by those who have apostolic authority or were under apostolic authority and became part of the canon and is revealed to all. And any, any gospel that contradicts the gospel presented in the word here should be contradicted. And so we believe that there's no further revelation that should be added to that known little secret way or secret knowledge that will help you to, to really be saved or to really be spiritual. Is that helpful? All right, let's move on to the word of knowledge. Word of knowledge. Again, in verse 8, 1 Corinthians 12, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit and to the other, to another, the word of knowledge according to the same spirit. 
Now, these are two, they're closely related, the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge, yet there is a distinction. The word of knowledge was the ability to grasp information and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, apply it to various connections. So um, we're not talking again about general knowledge here. Peter said in 2 Peter, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not talking about that general kinds of knowledge that every Christian has, but it's more talking about um, uh, a biblical writer or one who was involved with a revelatory gift, somebody who was revealing God's word to his people. And uh, it was something that they brought, they knew how to apply certain passages that formerly were not understood how to apply them um, for the church. Uh, and so um, we have this gift, the word of knowledge. And one example from 1 Corinthians would be 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, it says in 1 Corinthians 7, remember we taught on that, on marriage and divorce and remarriage and singleness and celibacy and all those fun things. And then it's, it gets to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 um, in verse 10, Paul writes, but to the married I give instruction, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. And so... Uh, he's saying, hey, I'm telling you this, but it's, the Lord's already taught you this. So this is something that you should already know. And he credits the Lord for this. Whereas in verse 12, he says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. When he says not the Lord, he's not saying that Christ disagrees with this and somehow he's, he's saying that the Lord didn't teach about this, but this is what I'm teaching about. When a believer is married to an unbeliever, this is what should happen if someone wants a divorce. And, he, and how does Paul know this? Where did he get this knowledge from? This knowledge came directly from the Spirit of God through inspiration, and he's sharing it now. There are other passages um, that we could go to. One of them you might just write down. I'm not going to take the time to go through it this morning, but it's 2 Peter 3, verses 2 and 3, where Peter says the words which were spoken by the holy prophets and by the apostles, and he applies them to that day. And so there's an interesting passage there that involves Noah and the flood and everything. And I believe that the apostles had the ability to look at Old Testament passages and they had knowledge that go, went beyond uh, what, what every Old Testament person might have known. doesn't mean that it wouldn't have applied to Old Testament people and that they would have had a certain level of understanding, but there's more knowledge that is revealed. We believe in progressive revelation, which means that God revealed himself slowly over time. Um, it's the same thing with uh, the way you raise children. We don't expect children to behave the same way as we do mature adults. Um, there's a, um, you know, when, when my kids were babies, we let them wear diapers. And we were fine with that. It was a good solution for a big problem. And, um, but as they got older, we expected them to grow out of that. And we, we instructed them more and more on what proper procedures were. And if my kids today wanted to still wear them because they were lazy or whatever, we'd say, no, unless something's you know, physically wrong where you need to wear them. Uh, you know. So when we think about God revealing himself, he revealed himself to, you know, uh, first to Adam and, and uh, Eve, and it was clear, certain things were very clear on who he was. Uh, and, but when he, he got 
we got more and more information, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, you know, and then Moses. And there's more about who God is in Leviticus. He's a holy God, and this is what holiness looks like. And the, the more revelation we have through Scripture, the more we understand about God. And we believe that his revelation is complete because at the end of the book of Revelation, it says, if anyone adds to these, let him be accursed. And so uh, we're not going to add to that revelation. We believe that this book is complete and sufficient and reliable. Um, and, but we, we do see that we know more about the Lord, about Yahweh, in our era, now having the complete book than most Israelites did during the time uh, when uh, God was revealing himself to them, and certainly Abraham, and, and before that, Adam and his descendants. But another interesting uh, text that's, that's uh, often brought up when we talk about the word of knowledge would be Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. So turn with me to Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, chapter 4 ends with the story of Barnabas and others who brought... Uh, they were, there was such a need in the church, so they were selling pieces of land, taking them out that they got from the land and bringing it to the apostles' feet and laying it before them. And it says in Acts chapter 5, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of land? Now it's clear from the context here that the, the, the sin was not keeping back some of the price of the land. The sin was giving the impression that he sold it and would brought the whole amount and laid it, to the apostle, laid it at the apostles' feet. And so, but how did Peter know this? He had some knowledge that the Spirit must have revealed to him a word of knowledge, uh, a message of knowledge. The word, the word means message, um, a message of knowledge, and it was very specific and he confronted someone on their sin. And then it says, while, he re while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and, and covered him, and after carrying him out, they buried him. But one person who had obviously not heard about it was his wife. Because it says in verse um, 7, now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last and the young, men carried her, the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. So supernatural revelation given to Peter. Um, and some say, you see, that's word of knowledge, and that's what some people believe they can practice in the church today. I would propose to you that what that is, uh, even, if that, even if I said that is the word of knowledge, is much different than what we see in the church today. I mean, just consider what happened in that story. It was very specific knowledge. It was very direct knowledge and very directly confronted. The knowledge was 100% correct. It, it, it demonstrated immediate visible results. 
But when we see people say, oh, I have a word of knowledge. And in, in some churches today, they believe that this gift still exists. And they say things like, um, someone here has cancer and they need to come forward. Someone here is struggling with the sin of lust and they need to repent. Um, and, and, and it's very vague. It's not anything that is specific for an individual. And when it is, if somebody tries to give a specific word of knowledge to an individual and they're wrong, the church doesn't respond with severe punishment or severe uh, discipline or severe confrontation. They just kind of overlook it. Oh, well, there's man's involvement in this. And so it, it's an awful lot like good guessing, fortune telling. It's amazing some of these people you see on TV who, who have this ability to try and uh, they say that they can read people's minds and somehow they get all this information out of the people. Um, so um, when we look at the word of knowledge, um, it is something related to prophecy or revelatory gifts. And if you turn back to 1 Corinthians 13, we'll see that both the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom, I believe, are, are it's clear that are related to prophecy because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, first of all, Paul didn't know. He, he had the gift of prophecy, but he didn't, have, didn't know all mysteries, and he didn't have all knowledge. How do we know that? Well, because later in verse 12 of the same chapter, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully. So what's happening in verse two? What's happening in verse two is hyperbolic language. Hyperbolic language or hyperbole is when you use an exaggerated form uh, exaggerated statement to make a point. I've told you a million times, never use hyperboles, right? <laughs> so it's an exaggerated statement to emphasize a point. And Paul clearly uses that kind of language at the beginning of chapter 13 to emphasize how important love is. Even if I understood all mysteries or had all knowledge, if I have not love, it's worthless. You see that exaggerated form, and we'll come back to that when we look at tongues, because earlier in verse 1, he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, the whole language there is hyperbolic. So we have the, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge. Any questions about that before we move on? Then we have the word of faith, or the, sorry, the gift of faith, the gift of faith. The gift of faith in verse 9, to another faith by the same spirit, is the ability to trust God in extremely difficult circumstances or demanding times. The ability to trust God in extremely difficult circumstances or demanding times. So again, faith is something every believer has, right? Hebrews eleven six. but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If you have not yet repented of your sins and turned and trusted in Christ's righteousness for salvation and believe that he died on the cross for your sins and that he is your substitute, that he is a sacrifice on your behalf 
so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your unrighteousness, but he sees Christ's righteousness, which has been taken out of Christ's account and placed into your account. And your sin has been taken out of your account and placed into Christ's account where he paid for it fully on the cross. And that so that when God looks at you, he sees you as righteous as Christ is, fully cleansed and washed and cleaned and forgiven. And that's all done through faith because you believe. And he gives you the faith to do it. But if you have not yet believed, you are not yet saved. You are not yet a Christian. So we're not talking about something that every Christian has, that is salvific faith or the faith of salvation. We're talking about a special gift of faith. That is the gift to ability to trust God in ways that are inexplicable during extremely difficult times. So again, 1 Corinthians 13, 2, he says, though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains. Now in that case, uh, you have uh, a faith, um, the, the reference to mountains is probably from Matthew 17, 20, where he says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Um, and that context uh, in, in Matthew 17 is the, the healing of a demon-possessed man. So this is a very difficult circumstance. The apostles were struggling with that, and he talked about their faith. Um, there's another reference to faith and moving things in Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 5. And in Luke 17, the, the issue is forgiveness, and the instruction is to forgive one another. And... Um, and uh, the apostles cry out, increase our faith. And he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be, be picked up and moved. And so he's saying, if you're a Christian, the issue is not whether or not you have faith at all. It's your responsibility to forgive. But the issue, if you're a Christian, is do you have faith? But if you want more faith, and there are some people who find it easier to forgive, and some people are very gifted in that because God gives uh, uh, the gift of faith to people who can get through very difficult times believing that one day God will take care of all of this. Now, we all have that responsibility. Just like in the gift of, say, generosity, we all have a responsibility to give to the church, yet some people are more gifted in it and enjoy it more and do it more freely. When it com comes to the gift of faith, we all have faith that saves us. We all have faith that we have a responsibility to make it through difficult times and we can learn, but it relates to trusting God. And some people are able to trust God in amazing ways. Um, and uh, an example of this would be Paul in Acts chapter 27. Remember, Paul was on his way to Rome. Paul had urged them not to set out on the last leg of that journey because the Lord had revealed to him that the, there would be a storm. In Acts chapter 27, verse 21, Paul stood in the midst of them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and lost. And I urge you now to take heart and there will be no loss of, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of whom, uh, an angel of the Lord of God, whom I began, belong, sorry, to whom I belong and whom I serve saying, do not be afraid, Paul, you must be brought before Caesar and a Indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with me. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe that it will be just as it was told me. So in Acts chapter 27, Paul's in a ship that actually busts apart and it looks like they're going to all die. 
and everybody was panicking for their lives, and Paul is just there calmly. Paul, the prisoner, is like, yeah, this is, we don't, there's no need to panic because the Lord's already told me that I have to go to prison. I have to go to Rome. I will stand before Caesar, and everybody on this ship is going to make it alive. So let me just tell you why I'm so calm. It's because I know that the Lord has a plan in all this. In fact, I know what the plan is, and therefore I have faith in God that he will carry it out. And all of them did indeed get saved, uh, and so on that island where they shipwrecked. So um, just, just um, a picture of the gift of faith is, is an incredible, enduring trust in God during extremely difficult times. We have about 15 minutes. I, I kind of want to jump into miracles and healing. I'm not going to get to tongues, but are we ready to go? Are there any questions we have? Yes, Michael. Would you say, based off of verse 2, that love is greater, better than faith? Or not better, but love is more important than faith since it says, and if I have all faith, so the question is love more important than faith. I think what Paul was trying to do there is try to, if you desire anything, desire love. And love, I mean, love is something that should permeate all of our gifts because we don't do them for ourselves. The gifts are all intended not to show people how great we are, which is what we all naturally want to do because we're sinners. Look at my gifts. Look at me. Whereas spiritual gifts are given to serve the body. And if you don't love the body, you can't serve the body. So that's a great point. And we'll come back to that again and again and again. But really, I mean, let me just ask you this. Just to put it in a real life situation. Before you came to church this morning, was part of your prayer, Lord, help me to better love others and use the gifts You've given me to serve them this day. That's what this passage is about. We're talking about gifts and the very things that we start to be, you're wrong and you're wrong and this is what it is and I have this and all of that. That's the thing that should unite us and should bring us to a state where we say, wow, I haven't really been affected by this passage like I should. And that's not just Sunday morning. That's during Bible study. That's, that's uh, you know, during the week when you're thinking about somebody, when you when you're, are having a time with the Lord in the word. Lord, help me bring to mind people that I know who are hurting that I could call and encourage today. Help me to use any gift that you've given me. And, and, and uh, I, I really think that rather than spending time taking surveys trying to figure out what your gifts are, just start serving. Just start serving others and loving others like there's no tomorrow. And... The Lord will use whatever gifts he's given you. All right, let's jump into gifts of miracles. All right. I'm going to put lump together in verse uh, 9 and 10, the gift of healing and the gift of miracles. It says in verse 9, and to another the gift of healing by the one spirit, and verse 10, the effecting of miracles. What were the biblical gifts of healing and miracles? I think that we get confused because we use the word miracle today for all kinds of things, you know? We have somebody in our midst who predicted that North Carolina would be in the final four. 
And people would say, and in and, and the final two. And somebody would say, well, that's a miracle. <laughs> well, it's, it's not really a miracle. Uh, there's, a miracle is something that cannot be explained by natural means. Uh, MacArthur, in his book, Charismatic Chaos, has a chapter where he says, what is a miracle? It's the title of the chapter. In the very first illustration, he says, some people think that when they pull into the grocery store and the number one spot is open, that it's a miracle. And so after reading that, all my kids will tell you, every time I find the number one spot, I go, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. I do that tongue-in-cheek to let them know that that's not what a miracle is. As much as I like to get that number one spot, it's not a miracle. That's just God's providence being kind to me that day. Um, Or I could be kind to someone else and leave it for them that day, which is what my wife thinks would be a miracle. But... um, <laughs> Providence is God overseeing his overseeing care for his creation. And we have examples of those things where, you know, like you don't see, see someone for a long time and you pick them up and, and they're like, oh, I needed you to call today. What a miracle. Well, that's not a miracle. That's just God's providence. Or you're short money and you're praying and God, somebody puts a, an envelope in your mailbox or in your dorm room or something that has the exact amount of money that you needed. That's not a miracle. That's just God's providence. There's not, a miracle is something that cannot be explained by any natural means. Um, and so when we have healing or miracles in the scripture, we, we note that they are... When the Lord healed someone, it was always instantaneous. It was 100% successful. It was without any recovery period. Uh, it was permanent in the sense that it, 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 it didn't just go back to how it was. You didn't need a book like a little booklet I saw that said uh, how to keep your healing that was handed out after healing services. Yikes. Um, It was done apart from any other medical treatment that could have explained it. And it was an organic healing. In other words, it was something that uh, you could view visibly or um, through an x-ray machine or it was, uh, you know, it was something um, that under a microscope or an x-ray machine, you could see that it was not that way, like a broken bone or liver cancer or a blocked artery or a withered hand or a broken spinal cord. It wasn't really functional healing where somebody has an addiction or lower back pain or headaches. Those are genuine ailments, but you can't necessarily see them. Um, You may be able to see lower back pain, but you may not be able to see it or what's causing it, in other words. Um, But um, when we have healings and miracles, they were immediate and organic. Acts 14, um, there was, uh, we have an example in verses 8 through 10. In Acts 14, it says... um, At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, a lame man from his mother's womb who had never walked, this man who was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and he had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand up right on your feet, and he leaped up and began to walk. 
It's a visible miracle. This is somebody, a lame man, who from his mother's womb had never walked. You think of the atrophy that sets in after someone has knee surgery and how they have to relearn to walk. Not only was there a miracle that his legs were healed, but that he, he didn't have to learn to walk. He could jump. He could leap. He had strength. It was a, it was a miracle that was immediate. It was organic. Um, in Scripture, we have people who were unbelievers who were healed. So you can't say that healing always depended on the faith of the person who needed the healing. Um, Luke 17, 15, we have those who um, were lepers, and only one of them came back to glorify God. Um, in Acts 8, verses 6 and 7, you have people who were possessed by evil spirits who were healed, set free. Um, and so Acts chapter 9, verses 32 and 35, you have a certain man who experienced the gift of healing as well. So um, it, was, it was something that was um, unlike what we see today. It was undeniable. In um, Acts chapter 4, verse 16, even the rulers of the Sanhedrin said, what shall we do with these men? For indeed, there's a notable miracle that has been done through them, and it is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. If the guys who want to kill you can't deny your miracle, that's pretty impressive. That's a pretty good testimony, pretty good reference. They included raising people from the dead, and their purpose was to verify the message that was spoken. The message that was spoken. Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 is a passage I gave you Prior to this, uh, last week we looked at that, um, but when we look at Mark 16, 20, it says, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. There are many passages that speak about the confirmation of the word is why the miracles occurred. Why the gifts of healing? Why the gift of miracles? Why don't we see that today? Because they confirmed the word of God. Instead, if we say, do they exist today? Well, there's really no need for them today. Um, because if you want to know if the word is confirmed, you can confirm it with the word today. We have a complete canon. Um, wow, I've got a lot. I'm going to pick this up next week. I thought I had more time. I thought I could say more in less time. But indeed, I'm constrained. I do have a, time, a few minutes here for questions, so I don't want to leave you hanging. By the way, I'm not planning to be here next week. I'm going to be out of town, and then I'm coming back for Easter, so it'll be a couple weeks before we come back to this. But if you do have more questions you don't get answered today, Jade is teaching next week, and he'll be happy to answer any questions about this <laughs> next week. Yes, questions? Uh, why do you suppose Jesus did uh, two-step healing? Okay. So... Mark 8 is a, uh, the question is two-step healing in Mark 8. I think there was specific uh, um, uh, purpose for that, and I could go back to that and show you that, but the, the, when I say instant, I mean it's still that day it happened. So it's not like what we see today. Oftentimes people say, in two years this child will walk and that sort of thing. That's pretty convenient if, they're, if they have a, a disease. So there was a purpose in Mark 8, and we can get to that, but the short answer is it was instant in the sense it happened immediately that day. Yes? Yeah? I was just wondering, how can we uh, pray then for someone who might have 
Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking that. Yeah. How can we pray for someone who has cancer or a debilitating disease? And that's so good, because, and this is the danger of starting something and then stopping halfway through. When we say that we don't believe that there is the gift of healing today or the gift of miracles, what we're saying is God doesn't endow that gift on an individual like he did the apostles. It doesn't mean that God doesn't heal today, and we should pray for healing. Most of all, we should pray for whatever glorifies him the most. Because sometimes the faith that someone demonstrates during a difficult time is what God wants to use to draw people to himself. So whatever he wants us to go through, we will go through. Thy will be done. This is part of giving your life to Christ. But miracles happen every day because people come to faith in Christ and their hearts are changed. That's a big miracle, bigger than any physical miracle because it lasts for eternity. And so does God still do miracles? I believe he does. Does God still heal people? I believe he does. Can we pray for that? We should. Does he give people, individuals in the church, the same gifts that he gave the apostles? I don't think so. And I've got, I've got a lot of passages I want to walk through, and I'll do that more slowly when we come back together in this, in this subject. Thanks for that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, again for this time together, and thank you for helping us to get a little bit of a better grasp on a difficult subject, one that has been used for years dividing the church. Our desire is not to cause division. And even though there may be some here or some who hear this message um, who may not see um, this the same way that we do, Lord, um, help us to communicate your word clearly and help us to do it in a way that brings about unity among the body of Christ and not division. We pray for our, each person here at Grace Church, Lord, that we would be using our gifts and intentionally trying to serve one another with great love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.